Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word there, let me invite you to open it back up to uh, John chapter 8. So we're doing this sermon series um, entitled That You May Believe. John's Gospel is really written so that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life. Now, throughout the history uh, of the world, and even in our present day, there are many people who have and still continue to make audacious, outlandish claims about themselves. It's perhaps... Uh, in one sense, not that outlandish, but one of my favorites is uh, the late Muhammad Ali, the, heavy, the three-time heavyweight champion of the world, the Olympic gold medalist in 1960. If you know anything about Muhammad Ali, you will know some of the most outlandish things that he said regarding himself. Before he'd won any uh, significant fight, he claimed that he was the greatest. And he earned the nickname the greatest because of his bold and poetic claims. He he used to say, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. He said, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his hands can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. On another occasion, he said, if you even dream of beating me, you'd better wake up and apologize. On another occasion, he said, I've handcuffed lightning and I've thrown thunder in jail. Now, ridiculous, outlandish claims. Now, let's be honest, Muhammad Ali certainly goes down in the history books as one of the greatest all-time boxers. But was he the greatest? Does he still remain the greatest? Well, the, the experts debate that and they don't think that the evidence doesn't back up his claim. But, you know, it's one thing for Muhammad Ali to claim that he was the greatest boxer of all time. It's quite another thing for an individual to make the audacious claim that he is God and that everyone should believe in him. And yet that's exactly what Jesus of Nazareth did 2,000 years ago. In the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus says on numerous occasions, I am, or I am he, meaning I am God, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so as we come to this passage, the big question in our heads is this. Is there evidence to back up Jesus' claim? Is what he is saying true? I want us to look at this passage under three headings. What Jesus reveals about himself, what Jesus reveals about his followers, And finally, what Jesus reveals about his opponents. And we'll spend most of our time looking at that final heading. Now, those of you who have been here for this series in John's Gospel, you know that, you'll know that as we've been working our way through, it always feels like Jesus is in the dock. It always feels like the religious, the Jewish leaders are always demanding of Jesus witnesses, evidence to back up his claims. Back in John chapter 5, which is a key chapter in relation to this chapter, Jesus has had to produce four different witnesses. He said, John the Baptist came to bear witness about me. He said, the scriptures bear witness about me. He said, my works, my miracles, they bear witness about me. And then he also said, the Father, he bears witness about me. In this chapter, Jesus is going to make another claim. This is a second I am statement. 
And these same religious leaders are going to say, give us evidence. What backs up this claim? And what's rather startling is that Jesus will give them corroborating evidence. In fact, he will give them irrefutable evidence, namely the cross. And yet still many of them will reject him and some will believe in him. So with that in mind, let's let's come to look at this passage. And I want to set this passage up by just putting it in context. That If you were here for the last sermon when we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 8, you remember what we said about those verses. In fact, look down at your Bible and you'll see the footnote. They're in brackets, verses 1 to 11, and it said, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. And what we said was this. Almost certainly these verses, 1 to 11, were not in John's first edition of his gospel. We believe wholeheartedly that they are a genuine apostolic account from the life and ministry of Jesus. We believe that they belong in the New Testament, but they most likely don't belong here. And that means, and the reason that's significant, that means that verse 12 really follows on from the end of chapter 7. And the reason I highlight that is because that sets the scene for us. If you look back to chapter 7 and verse 37, we read these words. On the last day of the feast, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the, one of the three great feasts of the Jews, the Feast of Most Joy, that great day. And on the feast, the, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when there was that water ritual, when the priest poured out water around the altar, Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On the last day of the feast, Jesus said, I am the rock who in the Old Testament provided water for our forefathers. I am the one who gives his people living waters. We're still on the last day of the feast. And one of the things we know is that in the, on the evening of the eight days of the feast, there would be a light ceremony. And this light ceremony was to remind the people that their forefathers were led through the wilderness for 40 years by the pillar of cloud and by the pillar of fire. And what they would do is they would all gather in what was known as the court of the women, or in this passage it's referred to as the treasury, and they would light these huge four lampstands, and all the people, all the men in particular, would have little torches and they would sing, and they would do a rather unprecedented thing. They would dance. And as they were singing and dancing, they were remembering that God, the Shekinah glory of God, was the light that led them in the way. And it's at this point in the ceremony, Jesus stands up and says what he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just as he'd done with the water ritual and the water ceremony Jesus does with this light festival, he says, this is all speaking about who I am. Uh, the, the rabbinical writings in the Talmud and the Mishnah give us a little flavor of what happened, and it's reckoned that one of the most one of the Old Testament passages that may have been used in the liturgy of that day was Zechariah chapter 14, uh, verses 6 and 7. 
And if you ever, if you go home this afternoon and you, and you go and read those verses, you'll discover it says that on the last day, there is a promise of one who will bring living waters, and there's a promise of the one who will be a light to the world. In other words, God's purposes were coming to pass in Jesus Christ as he fulfilled the Old Testament. And so Jesus reveals who he is. He is the light of the world. Let me just take that statement really slowly. I am. That's the name of God. That's a covenant name of God. That's Yahweh. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush, he said, who, who will I say to Pharaoh sent me? He said, tell him, I am who I am sends you. And here's Jesus and he says, I am. Ego aime, meaning I am Yahweh. He adds, I am the light of the world. And we've sung in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Throughout the Old Testament, again and again, God is associated with light. In the servant songs of Isaiah, the Messiah will be, the servants, the servant of the Lord will be a light for the Gentiles. And here Jesus fulfills that because he says, I am the light of the world, not just for Jerusalem, not just for the Jews. I am a light for all, for Jew and for Gentile. He reveals that he is the promise, the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah. He's the one who's come to dispel the darkness. He's the one who's come to show forth who God is because he is God in the flesh. So Jesus reveals who he is, but next Jesus reveals something about his followers. You see, Jesus doesn't just throw the statement out and let the people figure out in their minds what he means. He gives clarity. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in this, but will have the light of life. In other words, he says, if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you become my disciple, here's what's going to happen. Your life's going to change. Your life's going to be transformed. You see, you're blind in your natural state, spiritually speaking, but when you come and believe in me, you're going to be able to see. In your natural state, you're dead. But if you come and believe in me, you're going to be made alive. And you're going to come and experience salvation, the light of life. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, that's your testimony. You've believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and your life has been changed. You were once blind, but now you can see. You were once lost, but now you're found. You were once dead, but now you are alive. You were once children of darkness, but now you're a child of light. And maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian. This could be your testimony this morning. You can come and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and allow him to dispel the darkness. And the way, if you are a Christian, we don't just come to believe upon the Lord Jesus one day in our life, but we believe upon the Lord Jesus every day of our life. Because as those who were darkened by sin, darkness still lurks in the recesses of our hearts, and we need him every day to dispel the darkness of our lives. So we've touched upon what Jesus reveals about himself. We've looked at what Jesus reveals about his followers. Now let's spend the rest of our time working through what Jesus reveals about his opponents. 
So they hear this stunningly audacious claim that he is the light of the world. Anyone who follows after him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And their immediate response is this. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, do you see what they've just done? They've taken Jesus on a completely different direction than he was heading in. They, they, they pursue a line of thinking that, like, that none of us are really anticipating. They don't want to talk about Jesus being the light of the world and him dispelling darkness and, and him having the light of life. No, they want to say, Jesus, you can't say what you're saying because you get no corroborating witness. Your testimony is invalid. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus, he's done this before in John's Gospel, when someone takes him on a detour, he goes with them. He graciously allows them. In this passage, Jesus will not refer once again to the fact that he's the light of the world. Neither will they. But, by the end of this passage, he'll make the very same point that he set out to make. Because what he's going to do is he's going to show that these men who don't trust in him as the light of the world are walking in darkness and they do not have the light of life. Now you might not know this, but when these men quoted that statement to Jesus, you are bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true, I need to give credit where credit is due, that is an absolutely brilliant Because do you know what they're doing? They're quoting Jesus' own words against them. So if you've got your Bible there, just turn back one page. John chapter 5, verse 31. John chapter 5, verse 31. If I alone, Jesus speaking, bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now turn back to John chapter 8 and look at verse 14. John chapter 8, verse 14. Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Now, do you see it? There is a blatant contradiction in what Jesus has just said in John chapter 5 and now in chapter 8. What in the world's going on? I suspect if we'd been in the crowds that day and the, and the Jewish leaders said this to Jesus and we knew that Jesus had said the statement back in chapter 5, we would be all like, Paul, you've got Jesus. You're using his own words against him and he's got no way out. And now Jesus responds and he blatantly contradicts what he said in the past. Now here's the thing you need to know. So many people come to the Bible and say it's full of contradictions. Let me say this, there is no contradictions in the Bible and there's no contradictions especially in God and in what God says. (laughs) The problem here is not with what Jesus has said. The problem here is what the religious leaders wrongly understood Jesus to say. You see, back in chapter 5, Jesus was not saying if he spoke without a supporting witness present that he ought not to be trusted. That was not his point. In John chapter 5, Jesus was saying is that if I testify about myself, meaning this, if I come up with a testimony about who I am and it doesn't, and it originates only with me and it's not done in dependence upon the Father, not true. 
But in John chapter 5, the whole point is Jesus says, every time I speak, everything I say, I say with the Father, for the Father, because of the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 5, I and the Father are one. When Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. And so what Jesus now does is he's going to set up in this, in, in this exchange with these religious leaders how he, Father, are one, and therefore why his testimony ought to be trusted. Although Jesus is here testifying about himself, you and I need to understand that Jesus is not testifying by himself. He's got the Father testifying with him. He's testifying with the Father, for the Father, to the Father. Now let me show you how this plays out. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. But here's what, here's what he knows. For I know where I came from. Where does Jesus come from? In the beginning, the Word was God with God. There in the beginning, where did Jesus come from? He's come from God the Father. Then he says, where am I going? He says, I'm going, I know where I'm going. Where's he going? He knows he's going back to the Father. And so then he adds in verse 14, Here's the thing, guys. You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. This is Jesus' simple way of saying it, if I can put it in other words. He says, you guys are in the darkness as to who I am. Now, Jesus, he's absolutely brilliant when he's engaged in a conversation because he he takes them places they don't expect to go. Look at verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. He says to these men, you know what your problem is? When you cast a judgment, you do it on the basis of outward appearances. Now, although verses 1 to 11, I've just said, probably did not come right before this event, do you remember what happened in verses 1 and 11? There's this woman, she's caught in adultery, allegedly, and they all cast judgment. Jesus, she should be stoned according to the law of Moses. What do you say? And what does Jesus say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't judge things on the basis of mere outward appearance. He judges with the Father the thoughts and the intentions of man's heart. He knows that the heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. He says, the problem with you guys is you just judge on the basis of outward appearance. And so look at what Jesus goes on to say. He says, I judge no one. And what he means in that statement is, is that I judge no one like you judge. Look at verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus is making it really clear. The reason his judgment is perfect is because he's God. It's because he, the Son of God with the Father and the Spirit, they do all things together. They don't look at the outward appearance. They look at the inward reality. Now, moving on from this, Jesus realizes that these men have misunderstood what he meant when he said, uh, if anyone bears, if I bear witness about myself, then my testimony is not true back in chapter 5. Jesus realizes they've misunderstood him. And so he now wants to set the record straight. So that's verses 17 and 18. In your lot's written, 
And by the way, it's his law because he's the author of the law, but he puts it back in them. Okay, you Jews, you're worse than the law. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. Listen to what he says here. I am. By the way, that's the second I am saying in this section. He's making a statement of, that he's God again. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Here's the most fascinating thing. These men go up to God and they say to God, prove to me that you are God. Who's the higher court of appeal when it comes to God? God. And Jesus says, I am God. And I am at one with the Father who sent me and he bears witness to me. It's spectacular. It's like Jesus does mic drop. Guys, you should be silenced now. You're asking God to prove himself to you. Now, if we'd been there and we were watching on for entertainment's sake, see what the religious leaders say next. Again, give credit where credit is due. At a human level, is is actually brilliant. They say to Jesus, where is your father? Now, we might not get what they're saying there. They're making a deeply, deeply cutting insult. Where's your father then, Jesus? They knew the rumors. Mary was a virgin. She was with a guy, Joseph, but Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Jesus, where's your father? And you could see them turning to each other like, did you hear, did you hear that? Like, that, that was brilliant. We've got Jesus. Where's your father, Jesus? Come on. And Jesus now delivers his punchline. Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, we might not get the weight of this statement, but this is what Jesus says. He's standing in the treasury. He's standing in the headquarters of the Jews and these men. And he says to them, your problem, guys, you don't know God. You are in deep darkness. You know nothing of who God is. And I mean, the men who tried to silence Jesus and shut Jesus up, it's Jesus who silences them. Look at verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. No one dares do anything because Jesus has just given the ultimate blow. Your guys is, your problem guys is, you're so blind, you're in such darkness, you don't know God. Because you don't know me. Now, what Jesus goes on to do next is he continues the conversation because he's so keen to just labor the point that he and the Father are one. But he's also so keen to tell, to speak the truth in love. And so he says to them, Verse 21, I'm going away. And that's a reference to the fact that he's going to die. And you'll seek me. And you'll die in your sin. The sin there refers to unbelief. You'll die because of your rejection of me. When he says you'll seek me, the problem with these Jews is they're going to seek another Messiah. They're going to seek and look for the Messiah, even though the Messiah has come, and they rejected him to his face. Now, just to give credit where credit is due, these guys, they discern from what Jesus has said, 
I'm going somewhere where you cannot come. They, they think, I know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to die. And they're right. But that's not exactly what they say. Look at, look at what they say in verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? <laughs> These guys, they still don't get it. They come to the conclusion, Jesus is going to take his own life. He's going to commit suicide. But little do they know, they are going to be the agents who will bring about his death. And Jesus will die. But it won't be a death of suicide. It will be a death of sacrificial offering to God on behalf of his people. And all along in John's Gospel, if you've been working with us, you'll know that time and time again, this sort of thing happens all the time. Jesus is speaking on one level, and people are speaking on a completely different level. Jesus is speaking on the heavenly level and the spiritual realities, and people are just speaking on fleshly and worldly realities. Remember the woman at the well, speaking about water. She's speaking about real physical water. Jesus is speaking about the fact that he is the living water. Remember when Nicodemus... You know, the things of flesh are of the flesh. The things of the spirit are of the spirit. Nicodemus, your problem is you just speak always about the flesh. You just always speak about the world. You need to be born again. You need to become spiritually alive if you're going to see and live. And so Jesus actually goes on and makes that point in verse 23 to these men. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now what Jesus does next is absolutely absolutely a revelation of his character he looks these men square in the eye and he tells them the truth once again i told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sins he says to these men he said unless you believe that i am he you see that those phrases i am he if you know isaiah and you know the servant songs. You know that in Isaiah chapter 41, 44, 48, the name of God again and again in your ESV is I am he. And Jesus says, unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. But Jesus doesn't want them to die in their sins. Jesus wants them to come and know the light of life. He wants them to come to him and let the light dispel the darkness. And so to help them understand the irrefutable evidence of who he is, look at verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted, now he tells them, you're the guys who are going to do the lifting up here. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have put me to death, when you crucify me, then you will know that I am he. When I'm lifted up, then everyone can know that I am God. That will be the irrefutable evidence. How so? How does the cross reveal who Jesus is? Well, if Jesus has just said that he's the light of the world and light in the Old Testament constantly speaks to the fact of who God is, what does darkness in the Old Testament speak about? What does darkness represent? Exodus, plagues, 
The penultimate plague before the angel of death is what? Darkness. What does the darkness symbolize in the plagues? It symbolizes God's judgment. Deuteronomy. If you do something that brings about If you live in obedience, you bring about the covenant blessings of God. If you do something that's disobedient, you bring about the covenant curse of God. One of the covenant curses of God is people who do not follow Jesus or do not follow God, who do not walk in obedience, will walk in deep darkness. Jesus, when he was preaching in in the gospel, said of hell, hell is the outer darkness. How does the cross then prove who he is? What happened at noon? Deep darkness covered the land when he was hanging on the cross for three hours. What was the darkness a sign of? God's judgment. God was pouring out his just judgment on Jesus for the sins of his people. What was Jesus doing? He was taking upon himself the covenant curse. For all the disobedience of his people, he bore the curse in himself. He took his people's hell on the cross. And you know, the most stunning, the most striking thing is, at the foot of the cross, there's a Roman centurion who's involved putting Jesus on the cross, and he says... Truly, this man was the son of God. (laughs) In the midst of the darkness, when Jesus breathes his final breath, this Roman student says, now I see this man's the light of the world. And so if you're here this morning, what's your response to Jesus' audacious claim? And it's not that audacious. He's God. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will know the light of life. If you're skeptical, if you doubt it, he's proved it. He died the death, and then three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave, vindicating all that he had said and all that he'd come to pass. And he has returned to the Father, and he's coming back from the Father to gather his own and to judge the living and the dead. And the question's got to be, what is your response and my response? And Jesus said this, would say this, believe that I am he. Come and walk in the light. Come and know the light of life. Don't die in your sins. Don't go to the outer darkness. Don't face the covenant curse at the last. And if you're a Christian here this morning, and you know and you love him, you need reminded afresh every day of who Jesus is. Because you've got darkness in your mind and your heart. And you need the forgiveness of sin. You need, to set, you need to open your eyes up to the light of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And so this morning, come afresh to Jesus. In fact, we're coming to the Lord's table that's going to remind us of what he has done. Come and proclaim and celebrate the forgiveness of sin until he comes again. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit which illuminates your word. We thank you for your spirit which enlightens our minds. We thank you that even as we prayed at the beginning of the service, as we sang in Psalm 27, one thing we desire is to see the beauty of the Lord. Thank you for showing us the beauty of Jesus, both in this interaction with these men and as we think about him in our mind's eye, hanging upon the cross, showing and showcasing that he is God. We pray that in response to all that we've heard, that we would respond with belief and that we would follow Jesus. We would stop walking in darkness, but we would walk in the light. And that as we look in the light, we would see and we would know and we would have and we would enjoy the light of life, salvation in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.